Hi everyone, welcome back to Finding Fair Health. In this episode, we talked to Dr. Najib Rahman. I was totally blown away by some of the insights and perspectives from Najib. What I've been learning about health equity is the importance of seeking out different perspectives, and this episode certainly does that. Najib brings humility, realism, and pragmatism into the discussion too. We hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to Finding Fair Health podcast. On today's episode, I'm talking to Najib Rahman. Najib is an emergency medicine doctor in Leeds, but you don't have to go very far digging under the surface with Najib to realise that he's doing much more than his day job. I say day job, but he just tells me he's just come off some night shifts. So it's actually less of a day job. It's more of a mixture of day and nights, isn't it? Um, After growing up overseas, Najib went to Leeds Uni, but it didn't take him long to get back overseas working in international health and development in Rwanda and then in the Middle East. On returning to the UK, he didn't leave his international work behind by doing a master's in public health, all while working in emergency medicine and becoming a trustee of doctors worldwide. He continues to have his fingers in lots of pies here and overseas. I'm so excited about this episode, Najib, as you are our first secondary care clinician on the podcast. It can be really easy to think that tackling health inequalities is all public health and primary care. So I'm so excited to hear from you about your interest in all of this from a secondary care perspective, but also from all your experience overseas. Welcome, Najib. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thank you, Rachel, for the warm welcome and the introduction. Najib, it's great to have you here. So I guess to start off with, it's kind of asking you a little bit about why we're doing this podcast, Najib, because, yeah, what is it about tackling health inequalities that you're also interested in and why, why are you wanting to talk about all of this stuff? I've been trying to reflect on this and I suspect as with with many other clinicians, physicians, nursing staff, people in healthcare, you know, they probably, when they first started their journey, it was about caring for people. But at the same time, I don't think we were ever exposed or taught formally about what health inequalities were in medical school, at least not in my day, and neither through the initial, the initial parts of training and exposure, or even during exams, um, it just wasn't there. And so you had this dichotomy that if you were observant, you started to see that there was differences in how different groups of people were dealt with. And it was just the way things were. It was tradition, it was standard practice, it was um, judgment, etc. And I think you know, it's hard to know. I don't think there was a particular trigger, but I think, you know, I'm, I'm Indian by origin, but grew up in Dubai in the Middle East in the you know, 1970s and 80s. And although I had a very multicultural upbringing and exposure, I was also witness to a lot of discrimination um, and uh, based on language, based on culture, based on heritage, rightly or wrongly. And I was on the receiving end of it as well, in terms of systematic kind of discrimination. And I also think that when I applied to university here in the UK uh, and the way I was offered certain places or rejected from certain places also seemed to be at some point quite discriminatory from one or two universities in the, in the rationales that they'd given. And I think I was continued to be exposed to those kind of environments. And I think that made me more sensitive to the needs of certain groups of patients and this lack of fairness that seemed to be inherent. And so I think I felt I was in a privileged position then being in a in a caring in a caring role that where possible I could narrow that gap at least as part of individual accountability you know even if not in the system what can I do to try and make 
those journeys for certain groups of people that inherently get a bad deal, is there anything I could do to make things slightly better? And that's probably the start of it, I think, it kind of in the early, early years of, of med school slash actually to, to kind of house jobs and things, um, and then moving on from there. Yeah, I suppose that element of kind of discrimination and um, I'm sorry that that happened to you and it's that discrimination has almost spurred you on to kind of think about how you can do some incredible things that you've been doing overseas and here to try and make a difference. It's, it's interesting chatting to you about this because I know when we chatted on the phone previously about this, Najib, you, um, you were saying kind of that this is something that you've kind of always been interested in. Would you say that's um, shared with you by your colleagues working in secondary care or do you think that's something that is quite unique? No, so I think, I think as well as things, there's a spectrum you know, and or, or your bell-shaped curved, and there'll be some that are kind of the higher centiles, which are really engaged, enthusiastic, um, and there are those that you know just this really isn't on their agenda whatsoever. I don't think it's a classic bell-shaped curve. I would actually argue that the, the skew is more to the positive, and the evidence for that, although not very well researched, there is growing evidence of that. And I think from the emergency care perspective, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, so we have an emergency care and public health special interest group at the Royal College of Emergency Medicine. And in 2017, I think it was, at the annual scientific conference, we did a, a straw poll of participants just to look at, you know, do they think public health concepts have a role within the emergency care setting? And actually, you know, overwhelmingly positive, you know, and in general, everyone felt, yep, there's, there's roles and opportunities to deliver public health, you know, in its broadest term, but public health interventions within, within emergency care settings. But I think what wasn't there is, OK, what are, what are the to tools and guidance and support to be able to do that? Uh, more recently, we've just completed a survey called the, the SHINES survey, which stands for the Survey on Health Inequalities and Emergency Staff. And this was a survey uh, built on what's called a CAP model, so a Knowledge Attitude Practice Survey to look at people's understanding and perspectives of health inequalities within emergency care settings. And we, we had about 10 or 11 questions on knowledge-based metrics. So what, are they, what do they understand by health inequalities? What are the key policy documents that are out there? What are some of the legal things like duty to refer for homelessness or you know, trauma-informed practice, et cetera? We had some attitudinal-based questions. So what do, they, what do they think about some of these policies or behaviors or, or, or issues? And the last element was, what do they actually do about them? So what was interesting was, and this was based on just a, a Likert scale, you know, of, you know, one to five, where five would be, you know, strongly, strong agreement and positive skew, whereas one would be, you know, strong disagreement and negative skew. So knowledge was actually not bad, surprisingly. It was, it was just above average. So it was kind of in the mid, mid three, between three and four. Um, attitude was very reassuringly, very positive. And this was almost hitting on a four. So people felt really positive in terms of trying to engage with this stuff. Uh, but practice was negative, was actually negatively skewed. And I think this reflected some of the comments that I think staff themselves did not feel empowered or skilled or able to engage with these directly. So they felt the ED, they, so they knew some stuff around health inequalities. They felt this was the right location for it, but they just didn't know how to go about it. Um, and so I think, you know, and again, recently we've been doing some work around the health inequality strategy for, for at least for our trust, at least teaching hospitals. But I know many other organizations are doing similar bits of work, especially following uh, various documents and statements issued from NHSEI as part of the pandemic reflections on health inequalities. And so, again, even from a higher level, that there's definite 
there is there seems to be a veil that's been lifted on stuff that a lot of us with lived experience would say this has always happened but i think now people are saying oh wow this is happening on our patch and our watch that's really unfair we need to do something about it so things like racial variations in accessing services or um you know or variations because of deprivation and where people live or because of certain conditions that they have whether it be mental health or etc so I, or, or you know learning difficulties so i think i think secondary care is ripe to be exploited for opportunities uh, provided it is done i think in a and probably we'll be talking about this but i think i think the integration and collaborative working with shared resources is probably going to be key i think if if integration and resource allocation is is not is not done as efficiently as possible i think what you end up with is lots of little projects and programs where they don't really connect up very well and, and i think then will be a missed opportunity to really tackle this I find it interesting that what you're saying, it just, I'm definitely coming at this as a GP from a primary care perspective. And a lot of the things you're saying are all true of primary care as well. And all of the experiences that are definitely felt within primary care, as, as far as I'm aware, is that knowledge and awareness that these things are happening, but actually really feeling unable to be able to do a huge amount about it and have the, the skills, the practical actions, the solutions, that sort of thing. So it sounds like there's a lot in common um, across the system. Um, and as you say, lots of little projects often doing amazing things, but how we join some of this stuff up, I think is really, really hard. Um, I think a lot of it's also getting ready for scale, isn't it? You know, I think, you know, again, you've got individuals sort of passionate about the work, but then that's not sustainable nor building capacity to make meaningful change, because if that individual changes, you know, the, the changes their role, gets burnt out or gets up something else, you know, suddenly that project potentially falls apart and, and there's no institutional memory of it. I think in, in my mind, I guess this is maybe more of a public health approach to things or epidemiological approach is that we really need to understand prevalence and data and and localizing that data to then guide and inform our interventions i think for me as an individual you know i'm responsible for generating lots of data and metrics but i have no control of what happens to that information and how's that information then retro fit back into my my actions as a service they're data that just goes up for reporting purposes and monitoring purposes so i think one of the things coming out of COVID and, you know, we're trying to, to kind of switch the lens into a health inequalities lens. I think a lot of it needs to be what data are we actually collecting and what data are we using to make sure we're addressing health inequalities? Because without that, that feedback loop, I think all we'll have is interested individuals at varying degrees across the spectrum who feel empowered enough to do something, uh, but for a limited time only. Yeah, totally. And I think that's something that's really hard generally across the system is there's a lot of things that we do that we we can't show we're doing, if that makes sense. So I know in, in primary care and in A&E, in, in both, I think a lot of the stuff that makes the headlines is kind of waiting times in emergency medicine and in, and in um uh, primary care it's kind of length of appointments that sort of thing and I I think it's interesting isn't it around measuring and the data is how much stuff in the emergency department is there around quality of care and I think in primary care this is something we struggle with as well it's kind of actually breaking down our day and showing exactly what we're doing as clinicians yeah yeah I'd agree with that in terms of the data side I think it actually means giving time for data uh, and, and to be 
to be brave enough, I think, to allocate some resources to look at different data metrics beyond that, which is nationally mandated. And I think, again, historically, data has been used for monitoring purposes, not for population health management purposes. And so it requires for us, for, so, you know, using the emergency department as an example, is trying to say, well, are we going to be brave enough to say, yes, we're going to continue to collect data that's important for NHS E&I, but are we also going to collect data for our purposes to kind of help with that feedback loop in partnership with our ICS and all the rest of it? I think the core 20 plus five uh, model might actually empower a little bit of thinking about this because it, it's already given people a framework to work towards and to say, look, at least now there's something that's official and there's permission from NHSCI to work along this. I think, I think as, as we all know, whether we like it or not, the NHS is very permission-based and people don't like to work um, outside the box um, without permission uh, for various reasons. It's sometimes just too much hard work. Um, but <laughs> but I, think, I think, again, I think there, there seems a bit of a sea change because there's acknowledgement from the top and there seems to be a little bit of opportunity to kind of bring those two ends of the spectrum together from the frontline grassroots initiatives through to kind of leadership and connecting that. I think uh, just to reflect on something you said before about time. And I think, I think this is where is there's a huge missed opportunity within secondary care, because I think, in, and again, excuse me if I get this wrong, but from a primary care perspective, you are very time limited in terms of the direct one-to-one engagement. And then the patients out of the practice, you know, they, they come into the practice, got a bit of time in the waiting room, but usually not a huge amount, depending what time they arrive, they get their appointment and they leave. But if you think of, of secondary care, you know, if there's a huge amount of redundant time for the low acuity patients that come to emergency care, you know, both in the waiting room while waiting for results, while waiting for review, um, which can be engaged with some of these wider issues. And for patients that are on the ward, again, not for all patients, but there'll be a large proportion of patients that are just having redundant time on the ward. And, you know, you'll remember your time in, in FY2 where, yep, as, a, as an individual clinician, as part of a ward round, you know, what percentage of time do you really engage with patients on a one-to-one, you know, from a, from a wider perspective? We don't, you know, we, we take the history, we do the exam, we do some results, some interventions, and we have to move on because we've got so much to do. doesn't mean there isn't opportunity to engage with patients during those extra bits of time. So, so I think one thing is, you know, getting permission to kind of start thinking bravely about localizing data, whether it be by department, um, you know, and maybe that could be in partnership with, with the ICS partners based on specific projects. So it could be core 20 plus five aligned or just local issues that you've identified and aligned to that uh, based on your local population demographics. And I think the second thing is, who are the people um, you know, who are the teams and people that need to be developed to provide those interventions? And I'll give you the example of our, our A&E Youth Navigator program. So just as a, as a brief intro, we, we know that, you know, violent crime has been increasing tragically for, for quite a while uh, with increasing gang-related violence, particularly in urban centres, even now crossing those boundaries of urban centres. And we also know from fantastic models, both up in Scotland, initially pioneered by Glasgow, as well as down south in London, that adopting the so-called public health approach um, to violence mitigation has been more successful than a, you know, a, um, a justice criminality approach, for want of a better phrase. But, and, and so we've, we've got a, a multidisciplinary team of myself as a, as a clinician rep, um, the head of youth transitions from a, you know, a young person's healthcare rep, 
safeguarding uh, rep as well as leadership and the youth worker. And what we're having is youth workers engage with any patient that comes in uh, with a stab injury or violent assault, etc. But we've also broadened our scope to include any young person between the age of 11, 25 with other adverse childhood experiences and vulnerabilities. So we've been going for a year. In fact, we just had a review day uh, earlier this week and we've had about 420 engagements, um, referrals already. And that's only with effectively having one and a half to two navigators in post for most of the year. So that's a huge amount of reach. And what's interesting, 50% of those people had never engaged with any services before. So you're looking at about 200 plus young people who had reasons to be referred because of their their adverse experiences, but had never engaged with the wider service sector, whether it be safeguarding or social work, et cetera. So I think it's thinking of projects like that, where you say, look, this isn't really the responsibility of a key clinician or a key nurse, but we need to bring together some multidisciplinary leadership that understands the problem and is willing to engage with it. And can we then create a workforce that can fit that opportunity? So in that respect, you know, having some data to guide and monitor, thinking about the time-based opportunities in secondary care where such interventions can take place and who those target, uh, target patient groups are, and then creating the workforce to help deliver some of that, recognizing that workforce doesn't have to be physician slash nursing, that there might be other roles that can add value within that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that point, um, your last point in particular, is really, really um, interesting around kind of working together. And you've already mentioned sort of the integrated care system. So ICS's role in that and um, bringing in a lot of the core 20 plus five stuff can be really helpful in terms of giving some focus and direction. And I'm really, yeah, I'm really interested. And I guess pleased to hear that that's something that is being really considered in an emergency department setting. I wouldn't say necessarily emergency department setting. I would say secondary care in general. Mm. I think what we don't have yet are toolkits and blueprints of interventions that work or don't work. You know, so so I think eventually what we should be working towards is almost kind of a resource bank of different projects from different places around the country that are tackling different elements across the secondary care system that could be aligned, you know, towards that core twenty plus five model, but have also you know, already had maybe a little bit of validation in terms of their economic value um, or, you know, or there's plans to research and evidence that value. Because ultimately, you know, whether we like it or not, despite the ethics and morality of it, money is what's going to make this work. And I think accessing the funding pots remains, remains a challenge because, you know, inequalities are still quite abstract, you know, and again, these are longer term gains because what you're trying to do is improve population health and eventually that will you know, reduce resources, you know, resource burden. But to evidence that over the life cycle of a healthcare manager or a physician in a training role or whatever, it just is, you know, you're looking at five, 10 years plus before you see the changes. So I think creating the evidence base for this is also going to be really important. We know that we often lean towards the US, which has got, I guess, more evidence for some of these activities, particularly around, for example, smoking cessation or alcohol work, et cetera. But I, you know, we're a different setup and a different health culture. There's a lot of variation in our cities, you know, and our and our centers from north to south geography. So so I think looking at a resource hub for for case examples of what works, what doesn't work, what learning is there, I think those are the things to think about in the next, you know, in the next few years. And it's really about um, you know, I hate the word, but kind of democratizing health inequalities as something for all of us to engage with rather than niche public health physicians and a few primary care people. Yeah, you've said that a lot of people feel kind of quite positively engaged with this from some of the work you've been doing. But I guess 
it's working out how we can get everyone in, on board with that. Do you do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, so I think as with all these things, it's um, I don't know if ever if you've ever seen the the stakeholder matrix, which looks at interest and influence. It's basically like yeah, a four square yeah, matrix yeah. where, and so part of it's actually understanding you know who your stakeholders are, and then trying to decide what kind of investment of time and effort you need to keep people engaged and informed with. Um, I think. I think it would be naive to imagine that that you're going to take everyone on this journey together. I don't think we will. Um, but I think I think what we should be trying to aspire to is that people acknowledge that this is really critical for the healthcare system in general. This is not just some fringe activity of personal interest. That this is actually core to business, and that barriers are removed from implementing it. So I think we've, if you come from that standpoint. Then again, it goes back a little bit. And, you know, the King's Fund talks about this in their awareness advocacy action model. You know, and I think, you know, a lot of this is about raising awareness of those issues, you know, um, advocating using data, et cetera, for these issues as well and getting patient, uh, patient voices and lived experiences involved. And then actually looking at some actions, uh, you know, to kind of underpin that. I think, the, and I, I allude back to our initial introduction about, you know, maybe some of some of the motivations, you know, that's not the only motivation of why I got involved, but that was one of them. Not everyone has had lived experience or witnessed what the impact is of, you know, health inequalities on people's lives. I think, you know, the second part of a lot of what I've done has been in this national sector. And again, I've been completely in awe and humbled by the communities that I've been privileged to kind of work alongside with, who have far less access to anything um, that I've had, but have carried themselves with far more dignity than I've been ever able to do so. So I think recognizing those elements um, and actually being able to walk in in the footsteps of others, I think is also a very powerful element. I know more recently when we've been engaging with the health inequality story, hearing the stories of individual patients and what they've had to go through to to get to where they are um, and the barriers and hoops, et cetera. I think that itself can be very powerful. So when you're looking at trying to change that direction, getting people on board, I think it's a little bit about getting that data to say, this is the scale of the issue. Do we really believe we're working in such a fair system? Well, actually, maybe not. Um, and here's the hard evidence about it. And then bringing in those lived experience voices from both within your workforce as a proxy for the communities they represent, as well as from those communities themselves as patients in public to say, well, look, you know, this is what's important for us. And providing the space for those voices to genuinely influence for change. Um, and that means probably engaging with leadership and giving timeouts, regular feedback sessions, regular awareness days. And this is why we did our review day you know, last week, uh, this week, just to give an opportunity to feedback on some of those stories that could work. And those that were able to attend found it really rewarding to hear about the work that was happening. I think if that can be integrated as part of things like mandatory training, um, you know, key CPD elements. And again, it's really about normalizing this kind of activity and mainstreaming it, which means it's more accessible. I think if you create, if you create more access to this information and, and, and stories, I think we will, we'll be able to capitalize on people's interests already and we'll give them ideas for action. Yeah, totally. And there's so much of just what you said there, um, Najib, that I think is so important. So thank you. So advocacy, voices, stories, walking in other people's shoes. I just think, yeah, so, so powerful in terms of 
thinking about tackling health inequalities um, from an individual level in terms of intrinsic motivation and feeling motivated to make change, but also bringing people with you and trying to um, share that and share the reasons why we're doing things. So thank you for that. I think that's something for me around kind of tackling health inequalities that I think about a lot is the social determinants of health and building my relationships with patients and supporting them with their problems in the context of the lives in which they they live in I, I don't know how this kind of sits as a secondary care clinician but as a GP I, I kind of love the fact that we're in the heart of the community so we we have the beauty of continuity of care as well um I don't know perhaps kind of thinking about the social determinants of health is easier as a GP I, I don't know what do you think yeah no I think it is I, I think you know even reflecting back on how training worked out and you know what some of the selling points were for primary care versus secondary care or emergency care I think there was those distinctions about the role of a GP and that continuity embeddedness within a, within a community. I think that was very powerful. I remember going on home visits and, you know, the GP would know everything about that patient and their circumstance and could comment on it and could understand what was in the best interest of that patient at that particular time amongst a series of issues that needed to be dealt with, you know, um, whereas obviously from a from an acute perspective, we're very much kind of let's just focus on one thing at a time and we, we, we don't have the bandwidth to kind of provide that continuity. And I think therein still lies the flaw within the current setup of secondary care is that we don't provide necessarily continuity of care. Um, we're very issue specific. And, and not only that, a very narrow focus of that issue without looking at those wider interrelated elements so that even, you know, a patient will come up with two, three different presenting complaints of three, you know, two, three different, you know, a renal problem, a cardiac problem and a diabetes issue. But I can guarantee you almost, that it's very rare that all three of those treating physicians would actually have a confab together to try and discuss what's in the patient's best interest as part of their long-term continuity. And I think contrasting, I guess, the approach in primary care, where there could be more individualized patient-centered interventions across that continuum, I would see secondary care more as a place for these activities to occur to serve the needs of the patient, but it's not it's not related to an individual practitioner in, in terms of like a, a consultant respiratory physician or a, an endocrinologist, et cetera. I think it's about, it's the environment. So the hospital is a health promoting hospital and there's activities that occur that provide that continuity of care and integrated element. But it's not the, I don't think it'll be feasible to then get an individual clinician to take on board that kind of continuity. I think that would be, that would be the, that would be rare, I think. I think that's really interesting. And I suppose the improvement of the, well, as you were saying earlier, I guess, is um, bringing the workforce together. I guess there's an element yeah. of the importance of that in all of that um, to try and um, think about some of that stuff. And it kind of takes the, and I, that's some of the solutions within primary care as well, is kind of thinking about how we can work together as a whole to try and do something. Yeah, I'll give you, you know, a recent example is that they're trying to uh, restart smoking cessation services within trust and but unfortunately, it's kind of targeting only outpatient clinics, from what I understand. And again, it's one of these things where, oh, OK, the budget's been allocated just for that. But what about other environments where this could have occurred? And, and you know, what's the opportunity for outreach back into the community and follow up? Even for our own youth navigator service, you know, this is an in-reach service with youth workers while they're in hospital. And then we refer back out to community-based services, but we struggle to provide that continuing contact. So I think there, there needs to be the, these kind of roles where people can reach into hospital a little bit from community and can reach out into the community from the hospital with some shared roles and I think that would be that would be really interesting to see how that model works in in you know in the best interest of communities.
there's a lot of feeling kind of this isn't our problem <laughs> so therefore we're not going to deal with this that's not that in, in no way is a criticism to secondary care really it's more kind of that and we all do it um yeah. to try and kind of minimize our workload and trying to sort out the issue kind of in hand and I, and I guess it's trying to work out how we can work better together both between primary and secondary care but again kind of within the community um within as you say um clinicians within the within the hospital settings there's big challenges there yeah no absolutely and I think you know that's the first so I think the first step really is to try and bring people together who who are genuinely engaged at trying to figure this out you know because again you know a lot of people who are in positions of influence and power they they might be there for a range of reasons and have a range of agendas and objectives that they wish to achieve so when they then do get the opportunity to meet together with their counterparts it doesn't necessarily mean they're coming together with the same vision you know the visions can be be diversified so i think trying to have a common vision of what healthcare could look like in 3 5 10 15 years time for a given population and then mapping out that journey that we're all sold on together which isn't just about reporting back to NHS ENI, but actually is about localization of care and what our ambitions are as a city or a community. I think that's really important. And I think, I think then having transparency and accountability for that, because I think stuff like that does happen, but there's, there's definitely no way that that information gets filtered down to frontline users, whether it be nursing or physicians or, or any other country. So, you know, that often those kind of ambitions remain ambition-based documents that are really hard to reach and navigate around. So, so I think there's a lot to do with translating vision, mission objectives of how you're going to achieve that and making sure that your workforce are engaged and cited on those kind of issues. You know, we've got to fully acknowledge the pressures that exist, you know, and, and I think it's hard to see the wood from the trees when you're so busy firefighting and you're so busy trying to meet, you know, demands and metrics in an under-resourced system and we are we, we have to be blunt about it you know we, we don't have the resources to meet to meet the expectations of a whole range of stakeholders so i think we need to make that linear connection a lot stronger that by not addressing health inequalities we will just continue to have increasing demand in a resource constrained environment and therefore we're just going to be doomed to fail in that hamster wheel of doom <laughs> you know so so i think it's, it's really trying to say look we have to be able to reach out in ways that might be a little bit uncomfortable for how we've normally done things. But there are models of how we can do that. Um, there are powerful leadership frameworks, there's powerful communication frameworks, facilitation frameworks that we can learn from other sectors to allow us to move things forward and give people the vision of making, making health and healthcare access a bit more equitable and fairer with the, with the benefit ultimately being you know, reduced resource demand and therefore increased resource and more efficient resource utilization for us uh, as as a healthcare system. But trying to square that circle and make make that argument is is not easy. But I think that's where I think that's where a lot of work needs to happen in that kind of engagement, collaboration, messaging, bringing people together. I think this is where, you know, there, there is clearly ambition from the fact that I'm talking to you here today is fantastic. It shows that already there are some connections between community primary and, and secondary, which perhaps two, three years ago wouldn't have even been, you know, been an option. So building those networks and relationships becomes really powerful. And then capitalizing on that, again, is, is that next step. I totally agree. I'm really interested in something you just said, Paul, is using learning from other sectors and agencies. Do you have a particular example of that? So for me, this, this really is, you know, from a, 
from the international humanitarian response kind of sector. So uh, my my first volunteer trip, and I, I don't know how well, I probably should never have never have gone or should never have been there. But as part of my student elective, I ended up in post-war Kosovo, and that was in 1999. Um, and I was supervised by an American family practitioner. And there was also a couple of Pakistani physicians that were part of this volunteer trip. And, you know, we were there for about, I think only, I think four weeks it might've been. Um, but it opened my eyes to a huge amount of variation in humanitarian response from very community focused, but technically incompetent to very technically competent, but not community focused, uh, very uncoordinated, et cetera. But it, it, it got my interest in saying, well, okay, you know, when you're going to the front line of, of need for people in the midst of conflict or disaster or, or famine, you know, what, you know, how do we respond in such complex environments of resource constraint? And, and that's where I think, you know, as part of the COVID pandemic as well, I, I felt that there's a lot of lessons learned that we have failed to, to apply. And I'll give you kind of, kind of three examples. And, and these kind of have developed, you know, from the learning from the sector. So if you think back to the Rwandan genocide in 1994, where, again, the international community was highly criticized for its inability to respond equitably to the needs of the of, of beneficiaries, want to a better phrase, for the victims of the genocide. And out of that came a project and an ongoing uh, kind of, uh, an on kind of initiative called the Sphere Project or the Sphere Handbook was an outcome from that. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but the Sphere Handbook essentially articulates minimum standards in humanitarian response. So because there was no minimum standards, you know, you had a variation in, in interventions to then say, OK, if you're going to deliver healthcare, these are your ambitions as you need to deliver this minimum. So one, you know, one doctor can see X amount of patients need to look at X kind of metrics, need to deliver these pillars of healthcare, whether they be mental health, maternal health, pediatric, etc. But there was also minimum standards articulated for uh, for shelter, for food security, for water sanitation. And over the years, that that kind of framework has been expanded upon, has been evidenced, has you know, it could almost be used as a blueprint for engage, engagement. And again, if you think about humanitarianism, this is all about health equity. That's all it really is, is ensuring healthcare as a, as a human right. So I think if we're talking about health inequalities, what we're really talking is about is health equity and access, and therefore ensuring healthcare as a human right is just a basic humanitarian principle. And I would argue the NHS is inherently a humanitarian organization because that's what it aspired to do in, you know, 60, 70 years, 70 years ago or so. Um, but I think we've forgotten that. So I think I think recalibrating that framework and using learning from, let's say, the Sphere Handbook, seeing well, how would that apply for us now in our discussions at coordination levels, at individual levels? So in an A&E department, do I need to think about my cancer patients, my mental health patients, my non-communicable disease patients a little bit differently uh, compared to other groups of patients? You know, I think it just gives us a framework to work work with, and we can think about what are the minimum standards that we want to achieve within the existing frameworks of how we function rather than what's best practice. I think often we're guided by trying to achieve best practice, but actually we don't say, well, what's the lowest common denominator that should be fair for all. So that's one key lesson from the United sector. The next thing was actually after the South Asian tsunami, where again, there was huge number of, 
of NGO, uh, non-government organizations, charities, etc., responding to this. And I managed to get into Eastern Sri Lanka, I think about three, four days after the tsunami had hit. And again, saw the complete chaos of different people there and actually very little inclusion of local government, which actually had sovereignty to respond, not being included in discussions when people were poaching staff from different organizations. You know, it, it was really, really chaotic and haphazard. And if out of that came something called the cluster coordination system, which is again was mandating a framework of how to coordinate and cooperate and manage resources in complex chaotic environments where you would have representation from a UN related organization usually, so WHO or World Food Programme, et cetera, along with the relevant government ministry. And their main role was to help bring people together to understand who was doing what, where, for how long and with what resource, and to try and allocate it based on areas of need. And I think, again, when I talk about coordination, that's the kind of stuff I think we could poach from to say, well, how does the cluster coordination system work in complex environments? How much investment do we need to actually coordinate better? You know, rather than assuming it's going to happen automatically based on someone's given role, you know, as a project manager or a leader or whatever, but actually we probably need specific investment to ensure coordination happens. Um, and I think that's been a key learning point from the humanitarian sector. And that's made things far better in organizing response. And it also means that people, you know, agencies that, that struggle to get registered with the system because either they're not qualified or organized enough, et cetera, it means that that, that harm can be prevented because we also know that there's lots of well-meaning efforts that actually eventually be, are harmful for populations because they're not skilled enough to do the work they want to do. So I think by having strong coordination, you can actually set a gang. You can, you can almost ensure that those minimum standards are being met to the benefit of the community. Again, always keeping sight of the needs of the community. And I think the third big lesson um, came out of Haiti in 2010. Again, I was there, I think, on day two or day three after the earthquake. And there was loads of international medical teams deploying into Haiti to do things. But again... I, I think the tragedy in Haiti was that the UN building had also collapsed and they lost a lot of their key workers. So, so the coordination structures were probably not as powerful as they could have been in other settings because they'd been wiped out. But there was also a lot of unregulated arrivals of multidisciplinary teams that didn't quite know what they were doing in terms of skill set. Everyone wanted to help. Um, and so what came out of that was something called the Blue, the blue Book, <laughs> written by WHO. But again, this was trying to think of the minimum setups for medical teams whether they're focusing on surgical intervention you know a secondary care setup a primary care setup and really saying you know what should be the competencies and skill mix of those teams that are deploying and within the UK there's an organization called UK Med which basically has uh, you know is responsible for deploying our national teams in times of crisis and people can go train with them to build up those competencies and experience but again the key thing there is then recognizing the importance of training but also um, recognizing what is the skill set required to do this. So, so sometimes thinking differently, saying I might go as a emergency physician, but maybe I'm not using my EM skill set. I'll be using a different skill set for that particular role in that particular team. So having defined roles, responsibilities to meet a particular objective. So I think those, those, three, those three broad arching aspects, I think would lend itself 
both very well in terms of responding to ongoing pandemic related issues and and i say this you know bluntly we we know we know that the economic crisis is going to further create huge amounts of burden through poverty and through that poverty that means food insecurity and that means health insecurity as well because people as we've seen in other countries with resource constraint they will choose food over health but subsequently that leads to more health decline and increasing demand so I, I would still say we're in the midst of a humanitarian disaster, as defined by a large geographical area of involvement and a big economic impact. So the lessons from the humanitarian system still very much apply for us, which means how do we coordinate better? How do we articulate what are the minimum standards of care to ensure health as a human right for key, you know, for key groups of people, of vulnerable people? And then how do we think about the teams we work in a bit more innovatively? to meet that demand. Najib, that is just absolutely fascinating, honestly, your personal insights, but also bringing in what the humanitarian sector can, like the lessons that we can learn from that is just unbelievable. And thank you for sharing those insights because that's an aspect of tackling health inequalities that we haven't really covered on the podcast before. So really, really, really interesting. Najib, you started right at the beginning talking about your values and thinking about what spurs you on around all of this. In all of your experience, has any of this changed for you, would you say, from um, your insights internationally but also your years working in the emergency department I guess you know in youth you remain motivated but somewhat naive and I think when you hit kind of it's going to sound awful to put an age to it but when you start hitting your mid-40s I think you you start to you start to question well what impact and value are you really having and I think there comes the juncture of if you are not feeling fulfilled in your ambitions, then I think you're in a, in a difficult place to then continue. So I think feeling fulfilled is really important in the work that we do. In order to feel fulfilled, you need to have a bit of autonomy and you need to have a bit of feedback to look at the impact that we're having. And I would argue that, again, that the current system is, is rigged to let us fail because Autonomy is not often there in the decisions we make of how we want to, to care for our patients. And we often don't get the feedback to say that actually what you're doing is right, correct, impactful, rewarding, whatever. So, and, and I wonder if that's, you know, I wonder if that's a piece that we've not really explored much in the context of well-being, retention, you know, ambition and all the rest of it. So to, to summarize the conversation from last night, my wife said, look, Najeev, you've not been away now to do one of these international trips for more than two years and I know that when you go abroad for a couple of weeks to work on a project although you work flat out for two weeks you always come back far more refreshed and enthusiastic than otherwise so maybe you need to go away again (laughs) is what she told me Um, and what was interesting I said well to be honest morally I felt I couldn't leave for the last couple of years because I felt I had value to bring from my experiences to respond to our crisis to our humanitarian disaster and so I've spent the last two years really trying to say, well, how can I do things from my learning experience to keep me going? You know, it is not our responsibility to really change everything, but it's our responsibility to try. And so, you know, I'm in no qualms at all that a lot of these complex issues are not going to change within my life cycle. But I don't think that absolves me of my responsibility to make an attempt at rectifying that injustice or that unfairness. 
and I think understanding that scope and renewing that scope is, is really important. So many insightful points there, Najib. So thank you. I do always finish with just two questions. I just wanted you to tell us your one book or resource that you would recommend to someone thinking about tackling health inequalities. I was trying to think about this, and I, I'm very ashamed to say that I've not managed to finish a book completely for about 10 years. And I've got loads of books I started on traveling and then never managed to finish. But there's a couple of key authors that I've always found inspiring. So one of them is Afu Gurwande, who I think he's now recently been appointed actually uh, into a US aid role, but I think was a practicing surgeon. He writes some very, very insightful healthcare books, granted from the American setting, but it's worth in terms of just reflecting on ourselves as a developed Western healthcare system. Malcolm Gladwell is another one um, who writes, you know, philosophical books. And I think it's not specifically about health inequalities, but it's teaching you about things to think about things differently. So I've read probably a few chapters from each of those that I found quite, quite interesting. And then it sounds awful to say this, but I think just engaging with some core content around the theory. So, you know, a lot of stuff from Michael Marmot, uh, um, you know, and, stuff that the Health Foundation produces or the King's Fund, you know, just going through some of those documents, which often include quantitative and qualitative elements, I think are a really good starting point. And I think the last thing is, is really to reflect on one's own motivations and intentions. So, so I think books and theory are one thing, but experience is, is critical to moving this forward. And, and I think everyone has to kind of look into their own drivers. So for me, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a Muslim by faith and, you know, three things that, that I try to aspire to in terms of characteristics are Iman, which means faith, and Ihsan, which means excellent, and Ikhlas, which means sincerity. So, you know, I try to embed my, my faith and excellence in practice with sincerity uh, as an expression of my, my intent. And so that tries to move me forward. And I think recognizing in my interpretation of Islam as a faith is actually all about justice and fairness. Um, and so, inherently by striving on this journey for me personally is about fulfilling some of my own you know faith ambitions but that's you know I think people can these are kind of universal values you know I think I might say this from an Islamic perspective but you'll find this in in all drivers um, of you know moral moral grounding and ethical grounding but I think giving yourself the time to reflect on that and building those connections that reinforce and remind you of that along with some theory, uh, then that's the way I'd go about it. And so I think if books can help you inspire on that aspect, then then those are the books you should engage with. Thank you, Najib. And you're coming back to your values so much. And I I find that such a powerful thing, actually, about talking to you is how much you come back and you live by and you reflect on your values. It sounds like on such a regular basis. So thank you. And thank you for those book recommendations as well. I also struggle with finishing books, so it's useful to know that you do too. (laughs) Um, And then our final question is, if you could do one thing to tackle health inequalities, what would that be? I, I would say engaging with communities more um in in the broader sense because i think by engaging with communities we help to understand what their needs are and that will then be the motivator and the multiplier that the more we talk about it within our privileged positions we will still come up with solutions that aren't fit for purpose so i think community engagement is key and that's the one thing i'd aspire to change
Najeeb, thank you so much for your time. There is so much in there that I'm I'm going to have to go back and listen to from a personal perspective. So thank you. And really yeah, inspired by um, your insights and the work you're doing. So thank you so much. No, thank you. It's just been uh, quite cathartic having a chat. So, so brilliant. I'm really grateful you've given me the opportunity. Thanks for listening, everyone. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Further podcast episodes, modules, blog posts, and more educational resources are available on the Fair Health website at www.fairhealth.org.uk. If you enjoyed the episode, please do subscribe so you're updated when we release more episodes. It's always lovely to hear from you, and thank you for all the comments and feedback we've had about the podcast over the last few years. Please get in touch via Twitter at FairHealthUK or at RMSteam. We're really looking forward to you joining us next time on our journey to finding fair health.